The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by Claire Tomalin, whose new book is a biography, it's a sort of part biography of H.G. Wells, called The Young H.G. Wells Changing the World. Claire, you, you've opted to do the first bit of H.G. Wells' life, and if I'm reading it rightly, that's because the old H.G. Wells wasn't much good. Is that... <laughs> Also, because I'm so old that I thought I might not live to do the second half. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a very pessimistic view of it. Wells's public image now, I think we probably associate him mostly with those sort of science fictional novels like The War of the Worlds that and and Great Great Stories, yes. Exactly, these fabulous sort of science fiction novels. But in the sort of Edwardian period he was was much more than that, wasn't he? I mean, he was seen as a sort of real political sage. Yes, an exemplary socialist. He wrote about how his socialism cost him a lot of money because there were so many, so many things he had to give up to pursue the socialism. I think. And can you talk a bit about his his sort of childhood and his character? Because he was very much a sort of self made kind of character, wasn't he? Absolutely. He came with poor parents. He had to struggle to escape from being apprenticed as a draper. His mother's idea for her son, she had three sons, was to send them to be apprenticed to become drapers. And when the first two went off and then Wells came along and he absolutely loathed it, wrote some very funny accounts, very interesting accounts of what it was like to be an apprentice. You weren't always terribly badly treated, but it was a nightmare for him. And he knew that he wanted to study. He knew that he wanted to make his way in the world. You know, and he said to his mother, as, as an apprentice draper, you wear smart clothes while you're on a draper. You know, I don't want to wear smart clothes now, but I want to, I want to make my career. And so he, he actually persuaded her. She, she was working at Up Park, the great house where she was a servant. And he was working as an apprentice draper. And one day he, he walked the 16 miles across and stood waiting for her to come back from church and just said that he could not go on doing this. And he, she must let him study, study so that he could, so that he could make his way in life. And, and she, gave, she gave way. He went to work at the school he'd been at at Midhurst as a, an assistant teacher. And from there he got a scholarship to go to London absolutely fought his way and he was away up park um which you mentioned does seem to be this sort of enormously important part of his childhood and the formation of his character because he was sort of an insider outsider and it gave him a taste of aristocracy but at the same time probably crystallized some of his socialism it gave him access to books that was the thing i mean his mother was the housekeeper down in the basement and they had attic bedrooms and up in the attic there were books and then he managed to the two old ladies who lived there were you know let him let him be around but he would dive into the, the drawing room to get more 
like a rat, he said, get more books to read. And so he really educated himself sort of anything Dr. Johnson, Plato and translation. And he always acknowledged what Uppart gave him. And later uh, when he'd, he'd gone off and he was working school and he was ill, he was able to come back to Uppart because you know, that was all right. And he was put into an attic room and a very good London doctor, Dr. Collins came and really probably pretty well saved his life. So it meant a huge amount to him to be associated with this beautiful house and wonderful park around it and the Sussex landscape. Now that education at Park, I mean, what are the sort of striking things? As you say, he set out, you know, he was devouring books. He definitely, you know, Drapery's loss was going to be something else's gain. But he started out, the trajectory he was on was not one towards being a novelist, was it? I mean, he, he was interested in science. Yes, yes. What, what changed? How did that, that move? Well, that's a good question. He went off to be a schoolmaster in Wales and fell ill, really ill, and so had to sort of go back and be nursed at that park. And I think there he began to think that writing was going to be the only way he could earn his living. And then he started to write stories. And uh, The Time Machine was, was a terrific success, his, his first story. And he, he went on writing. It sort of catapulted him to success, didn't it? I mean, it was almost overnight. Is that, is that a fair representation? Yes, yes, it, it came very quickly. I was thinking William James, he got to know Henry James, lived near him. And, William James said to him, you are now an eccentric. Perhaps in 50 years you will figure as a classic. Right, right forecast from, from William James. So people saw, people saw that he, from very early on, that he had an extraordinary gift. Had a lot of literary friends. Well, those, those literary friends, there's a kind of fascinating little, you know, round about the South Coast, there's this sort of moment, isn't there, where... Often quite from abroad, you've got people like Stephen Crane and Henry James and Joseph Conrad all kind of knocking about together. Yes, yes, it was It was very striking. I mean, it's understandable, isn't it? It's a jolly nice place to be. <laughs> that South Coast territory, England. And you're close to the continent. And he got Voisy, a very good architect, when he'd made some money to build, build him his house, that really lovely house on the top of a cliff. And these friendships, I mean... They look like rather different types of writers. Yes, very different. Yes. I, mean, I sort of rather love the exchange between him and Henry James. Yes, well, that's true. They were all very different types of writers. Uh, of course, Arnold Bennett became a great friend, very one of his cl very close friends. Writers were pretty sort of pretty mutually supportive, it seems, at that time. Now, you... Say, so, you know, one of the notable things about Wells is he really did crank it out. You know, he wrote an incredible amount. Yes, he worked very, very, he was a very, very hard worker and yet managed to have an extremely enjoyable life. Had a very supportive wife. She set up, she set up a, a very good household, you know, where he was well looked after. Do you think his work suffered from the speed at which it was written? I get the sense sometimes in the book you say, you know, Tono Bungay is, is wonderful, but it would have been even better if he'd, if he'd been able to slow down and consider it a bit more. Do 
I say that? <laughs> I think you said words to that effect. Maybe it's not Tony Bungay you're talking about, but... I think Tony Bungay is a really terrific book. It's a wonderful book. It's a, it's a classic. I sometimes think it's not read much because it's got this peculiar title. And it, I always want more people to read it. It's the Romance of Commerce. Tony Bungay is a patent medicine. And uh, it's full of extraordinary characters and extraordinary events. But it is a romance of commerce. It was very original, extremely original book. And you, know, you mentioned this this sort of loving environment, or at least supportive environment, that that he he found with his second wife. I mean, the history of H. G. Wells's personal life is is kind of pretty shocking a lot of the time. I mean, in, in you know, he very much, in vulgar terms, kind of had the horn from a young age. Sex drive seems to have kind of dominated a huge amount of his personal life. Well, I think he thought sex was very, very important. It was something he wanted. He thought everybody should be able to have, that it was good for people, which is a cannibal point of view, I think. But, you know, the, as you say, she was his second wife, and his first wife was very much sort of kicked to the curb very quickly, wasn't she? Yeah, she was his very, very pretty cousin, and... Um... He was terribly disappointed. He was waiting for sex, sex, waiting, and they got married, and and it was just a terrible disappointment to him. He said there was no flame meeting flame. No, she didn't. She wasn't really interested in sex. She didn't like it very much, and it was sort of a disaster. And then he met this student who became his second wife, and that was that was good. That was a good marriage. But as I think you put it, he he was absolutely faithful to his first wife right up to the point they were married. I think he tried out at a whore or something, but it wasn't very good, not surprising. But with this second wife, I mean, he rechristens her, which <laughs> seems eccentric at best and a bit sinister at worst. What, what's your reading of that? Well, I think they thought it was fun. I think uh, changing your name, having a different name. I don't think it was sinister, no. He did, he did dominate her and she accepted his domination. She loved him very much. Um, I don't think she minded having her name changed. And do you think she minded his amours? Well, I think she probably did, yes. I mean, who wouldn't? But again, she accepted. Well, she, she, didn't, she didn't like it when he actually put up a picture of Amber in the house, Amber Reeves, and, and said, she said it hurt. She, she didn't want him to do that because she felt hurt when she saw it. She was extraordinarily tolerant. Very nice woman. And she had, they had the two sons, supreme importance to both of them, the daughters, the boys. She had a hard time. And, you know, the friends like Bernard Shaw and his wife Charlotte, they, they really liked her. People really liked her. She was a very nice woman. I mean, when he was very, very old, living alone, he said what he'd like to see is my wife walking up the garden path. She'd been dead for many, many, many years. But you know that's what he's thinking. He's thinking of Jane walking up the garden path. Very touching remark, you know. Yeah, I mean, the, the the sort of most important love affair he had was with Amber Reeves. I'm hoping I'm not putting words in your mouth by saying so. It's certainly... In that period of his life, yes. I mean, yeah. In the life of another very important one, yes. Well, but, Amber Reeves was the brilliant and beautiful young Fabian when, they, when the Young Fabian Club was formed, when he, when Wells was in the Fabian Club and all socialists. And they knew the... They, they knew, her family, her parents, well, they were all very close. And she went up to Cambridge 
and um, she corresponded with Wells, and he went down for socialist meetings. And I, I was at Newnham, so I know all about those rooms at Newnham. She seduced him, or they, <laughs> anyhow, they made love and began this affair and had this sort of very thrilling sort of affair when she came down from Cambridge and they used to meet in rooms in London. And uh, as they knew it couldn't last, but then of course she did what girls do. She said, I want a baby, <laughs> I want you to give me a baby. And it all got very complicated and painful. And she ended up with everyone sort of clustered around. She, she married, um, Rivers, a, a contemporary student of hers, very, very nice man studying law, who was prepared to take this on. But she was still calling Wells master 20 years later. And in fact, she worked for him much later, you know, when he was writing books with, it was a very important relationship that, and the, and the, and the letters, the love letters, his love letters to her are, are really worth reading. You, you say in the book, which I, I... There's a great delicacy to that because you sort of say that there are different ways of reading the relationship with Amber. Do you find yourself coming down on one or the other? Because, I mean, nowadays people might say, oh, he's groomed her, he's taken advantage of her, he's, he's a bounder. You don't seem to come quite down on that. I don't think that's right. I think she was very much the one who pushed it, actually. I think she, she wanted him. She wanted to have a love affair with him. Of course, he, he, he fell in love with her. But his, letter, his letters, some of his letters are very good, setting out what might happen, you know, if they actually went off together and went and lived abroad. And he sort of said, writes wonderful letters saying it, <laughs> looking at both their characters and what the situation would be. didn't really think it would work, whatever they felt. And what do you make of his character overall? Because it seems to be very sort of contradictory. I mean, I found in the course of the book that I I, I sort of warmed to him immensely and then I, he'd, he'd do something enormously selfish or enormously aggressive and I'd, I'd be... I agree with you. Yes, I'm warmed to him. I'm charmed by him. I fall for him. And then he does something something pretty awful. <laughs> How could he behave like that? So it's a... You know, he was a real person. <laughs> people People can be like that. And I suppose because of his success and because of his energy, and he was, you know, he was taken up by very rich people, grand hostesses. A wonderful moment when he asked Balfour to either to give him a chair somewhere or give him a lot of money. Balfour didn't, but Balfour was taken by him. He, he liked him. He, he could charm almost anyone, I think. Of course, he was a, a terrific Republican very terribly disappointed at the end of his life. He thought the royal family by the end of World War II would disappear, would disappear how wrong he was. <laughs> yes. But that, I mean, looking back at this distance, the, you know, one of the oddities is the things, as you say, he was moved from grand house to grand house. You know, he was a member of a sort of socialist group, the Fabians, which entailed, you know, having having dinners with the prime minister and... Miss Beatrice Webb was was a you know upper class, highly educated woman who knew the prime minister. But she she'd married her, of course, below herself socially. She was she's a she's a terrific figure, Beatrice Webb. I think a marvelous figure, and their friendship, which 
broke down and to some extent were was re restored at the end of their lives, which was very, very nice because they, they, they were really good together. They were good for each other, I think. Was there a bit of Wells amid all this that still felt like an outsider, do you think? I'm just very struck by, for instance, his professional dealings with his agents and his publishers were very, very kind of, you know, he was really making sure he was getting paid. God, yes. They were, they go, I mean, he was very, very fierce and was always prepared to just break off his side of the bargain and go off and find another publisher and absolutely intent on being properly paid for what he felt was being properly paid for his work. I, I think publishers and agents can probably cope with these things, you know. I think probably writers are entitled to sort of make trouble if they feel like it. I don't, I don't think he, I don't blame him for those, that sort of behaviour. But, but does it, do you think, reflect a kind of anxiety that, you know, he knew he was from the, the lower orders had arrived in the higher orders and was, was always in danger of sliding back. No, I don't think that. I don't think that at all. I think he felt quite secure socially, probably after fairly soon. I think it was his sense of entitlement, you know, that he did the work, he expected to be properly paid, and he didn't want anyone to take advantage of him, and he would fight for his rights. I mean, he's also a very good friend to other writers, you know, Gissing, when Gissing was dying, he flew out, to, he didn't fly. No, he didn't fly. <laughs> he took a boat out. Yes. But later, he, in the novel, he flew someone flies out. I was with him, went to him when he was dying. And uh, he and Arnold Bennett had a very, very warm, close friendship. He was a good, good friend. In terms of his sort of oeuvre, what were his great successes? I mean, I'm, I'm just intrigued again by this idea of his, you know, his political writings now are not much read. I think, are they? I mean, you, you bring out this wonderful essay he wrote, or, or short book, the, This Misery of Boots. It seems to be hard to run, and it's really brilliant. It's a brilliant essay, yes. But how <laughs> I can tell a lot from what people have got on their feet and how important it is that people, sh everyone should have comfortable, well-made shoes and how this must be worked for. He talks about girls you know they walk so prettily if they've got comfortable shoes on their feet and it's awful to see them not walking prettily which is a very good male reason for saying people should have good shoes but it's more than that of course did that i mean i i felt reading the sections you quoted of this misery of boots thinking this sounds a lot like orwell it's the sort of thing orwell could have written now you open the book by saying all well as a school child, borrowing the book from Cyril Connolly. Yeah, that's right. Yes, yes. No, there is a there is a sort of connection there, isn't there? I mean, Orwell writes. I think it was Orwell. Maybe Cyril Connolly says, "You know, we would not have been. You know, our generation would not have thought the way it did or seen the world the way it did had it not been for H.G. Wells." Yes, that's right. Yes, I think that's it. that's. And Orwell was terribly shocked that when talking to Wells, you know, years later, that Wells didn't seem to sort of care about it, didn't, he didn't remember his young writing, didn't care about it, didn't sort of, Orwell was very surprised. Why was it, do you think, that he didn't care about his younger writing? Was there something he was unsatisfied with about it? I don't think so, no, I don't think he could have been, because it was very good. I think he just 
his, he, he'd rather lived in the present. He sort of moved on and was concerned with, you know, he had, was very politically active in the later part of his life, of course. He had all the right ideas about international government and things like that. Did he see the sort of, you know, scientific romances or whatever you would be the right phrase for them? Did he sort of see them as, as kind of potboilers or did he, you know, he wanted people to look more at his literary novels or did he see those as, a, as a, something he was happy to own, if you like? Well, I think he must have been happy to own them. I don't think he sort of pronounced on this. And, you know, he, was, he wrote so much and, you know, then he wrote, he wrote sort of, he probably just didn't think about them anymore, but I think he must have been proud of them. He must He could not have failed to be proud of them. I mean, that, that interest in science, you know, as you said, he, he started out, you know, he was studying with biology under T.H. Huxley, you know, one of the great men of the age. And he sort of, you know, I think, I can't remember exactly how you express it, but you say he, you know, he sort of slightly lost interest or his interests went elsewhere. He got so interested in everything else. You know, he would go to libraries and, you know, discover books about art and history and literature. He, he's, he was taking in so much. Yes, yes, that's true. However, he taught science and worked as a school teacher, taught students, wrote about science. He, he was prodigiously clever and able to take in enormous amounts of information and use it, I think. You say, I think, which sort of fascinates me that he, one of the things that annoyed him later in his life is that he never got to be a member of the Royal Academy or a <laughs> fellow of the Scientific Society. <laughs> yes, he thought that his scientific work was not properly acknowledged, yes. He did care about that. But, you know, he, he rather, he, Wells was rather someone who wanted everything. You know, he, he wanted as many women as he could have and he wanted as, as much... <laughs> Acknowledgement of his his gifts, he did pretty well actually. All his books, ten of his books, are being reissued when he was eighty, aren't they? And things like that. And his and his remembered, his remembered, and, and still read. He certainly is. You know, one of the as it were black marks against the Fabians and Widow Shaw was their embrace of eugenics. Did you know, how deep in into that particular pothole did Wells himself step? Well, I think he, I think he did think that the human race should be sorted out and inferior specimens should be discouraged, <laughs> something like that. It's a very complicated... He didn't say anything terribly shocking, I don't think. I mean, it is a complicated question, isn't it? But, yes, it was... Since it had no influence on any policy, I don't think it matters very much. What do you think he will be remembered for, or is remembered for? And do you think that's the right thing, if you see what I mean? Well, I think his stories, I think War of the Worlds and Time Machine, uh, I think I think he wrote it, and the, the Door in the Wall is another great story. I think he will be. Antonio Bungay, I think, is a, nearly a, a great novel. Perhaps I should say it is a great novel. It's, a, it's an important novel. I think that I think 
those, he'll be remembered for those things. And maybe some people will remember him for his political activities too. Being a Republican never goes down very well in England, of course. Are you at all tempted to do the older H.G. Wells? Or is this your last word on the subject? I'm afraid it's my last word on the subject, yes. I mean, <clears throat> yes, absolutely. I, if I were going to do that, I'd have, I'd have done it in one book. I wouldn't give <laughs> the trouble of writing another book. But of course, he, he, remained very, he remains a very interesting figure. All to the end, to the end. Well, you've written a very interesting book, and it is The Young H.G. Wells Changing the World. Claire Tomlin, thanks very much indeed. listening to the spectators books podcast very much hope you enjoyed it and if you did please do consider rating or reviewing us on the itunes store we'd love to hear from you